In old school games, life is cheap. Don't be a dope. Bring your pole, oil, and rope. And try not to go down in a heap. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Down in a Heap podcast. I'm your host, Rob. Podcasting to you live from beautiful northeast Minneapolis. Back from... Our vacation to the north shore of Lake Superior, it was a wonderful time. I mean, it's always nice just being away from work for a week, but you couple that with a beautiful cabin on Lake Superior and uh, <laughs> and wonderful weather. It was in the upper 50s, low 60s with lots of sunshine, which meant it was actually hot sitting out in the sun on the deck. Um, actually got a little <laughs> sunburn at times. But, uh, yeah, it was a great time. Lots of good food. Lots of R&R. However, I didn't really get, when I look back on it, I didn't get much reading done. I didn't get much, hardly any game prep or, um, I don't know, any work on the campaign really done. <laughs> just a, way too much just sitting around and uh, just soaking it up. But I guess that's part of the idea of a vacation, too, right? Just decompressing. The other thing I'm kind of excited about right now is a lot of the, well, some of the Kickstarters that I've supported are starting to fulfill now. So I completed my uh, purchasing or finishing off with shipping and stuff with uh, the Swords and Wizardry uh, box set. So that is being shipped out to me along with the accessories pack, which has an extra booklet of monsters a new adventure, and uh, a little landscape uh, uh, DM screen. So that should be coming to me hopefully within a week, and I'm very excited to get that. I've also got uh, In the Tower of... or In the Shadow of Tower Silver Axe by Jacob Fleming, one of the projects I backed on Zine Quest, and that is winging its way to me as well, so I'm eager to see that. There's been a little bit of progress or updates on some of the other Zine Quest projects I supported, and I'm looking forward to seeing all of them. And what else? Well, there's a bunch of calls that are sitting in my Anchor inbox, so let's get to those now. First up, I believe, is... Jason from Nerds RPG Variety Cast with uh, clarifying his idea for the next contest. Hey Rob, Jason here. Just expand on that contest idea. No, it's the actual song. So you have to pick a cartoon that actually has a song with words in it that's sung. And then, you know, sing a couple lines or sing a stanza or, you know, sing something out of that. Enough that we, you know, should be able to identify the cartoon the best they can. There'll be no judging on musical ability, of course, but if they're duplicate entries, then they get tossed out, which should encourage everybody to look for obscure cartoons. No? I, that's up to you. But anyway, that was my idea. Hmm. I like the idea. I like, especially like the idea of tying it to cartoons somehow, and I'll, I think I'll for sure tie one of the contests to something cartoon-related. I'm not sure about the singing, because there are a lot of cartoons that don't even have lyrics or or words to like a a theme song or anything. I suppose you could have something where they say like a catchphrase from one of the main characters or something, or a line or something, or something from a theme song, but I'm also wondering if how many people would be willing to call in and actually sing. <laughs> I might have been pressing the boundary uh, as far as I could with just an impersonation of someone like Bella Lugosi. But, hmm, I do have an idea, I think, for what the next one will be, and I'll, I'm not sure if I'll announce it in this show because the bonanzas tend to get pretty long and I might get buried and uh, people might not hear it. But thanks for the idea, and Jason's got another call here on to online gaming. Hey Rob, Jason, one more thing. As far as the online play, yeah, I don't think it's going anywhere. I mean, 
you know, I was doing online play back in the G plus days. So yeah, I know a lot of people were. So it's, yeah, it was around before this current mess and I'm sure it's not going anywhere, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's the optimal thing. It's just the good enough thing for those of us who don't have in-person groups. So anyhow, take care. Yeah, I realize that online play has been around for a long time. It's a very new experience for me. Uh, I just, I mean, was it this year? Was my, uh, I think I, I know I did a top secret game via Discord with Chris and Adam one time. And that was last year, maybe even 2019. It's time flies. Um, I don't think online play is going anywhere. I think the actual tabletop face-to-face experience is what is going to... I don't think we'll ever die out, but I think that will be the more unusual play style, especially as these virtual tabletops become more and more advanced and uh, just communication um, with multiple people online as those apps become more and more advanced. I think the actual getting together around a table to uh, have these have these games, I think that's going to be the outlier in the future, not the norm. Hey Rob, uh, Daniel, I just keep um, going to speculate on the estimated audience thing. I don't know. Uh, maybe I'll take the time to try to figure it out. But um, I know different platforms handle these things differently. For instance, YouTube always looks at, uh, at it as uh, unique, but they didn't always do that. So it could be that Anchor's not looking at it as unique listens, meaning that like if I listen to your show twice, you know, I start listening to it in my house and then I stop and then a couple days later I, I listen to it again, but now I'm listening to it in my car. Uh, maybe that's a second listen for them. The other thing they might be doing is looking at the total amount percentage-wise of the show that people listen to and doing it that way. So you might have, you know, actually have an average of 100 people uh, listening to your show, but because they the average listening amount is only 80%, then you would have an average audience of 80. So who knows? And that was Daniel from Bandit's Keep podcast and YouTube channel. Yeah, and he was talking about how I was pondering how Anchor arrives at the estimated audience number for your podcast. And mine actually crept up while <laughs> while I was on vacation. It went from 67 to 70. And I, I don't know exactly how they calculated uh, the possibilities that you suggest could very well be true. However, I do think it's weighted towards recent episodes because I don't know if you've noticed this but anytime you post a new episode your estimated audience drops substantially so when I drop this I'm sure it will go from something like 70 to 60 or something it drops significantly until a bunch of people start listening to the newest episode then it comes back up to what you had kind of established so I think it's based upon recent episodes I mean, so I have this estimated audience of 70, but if you were to take my total listens and divide it by my total episodes, if you were doing like a strict average, it would actually be around 90. So I don't know. I mean, it's just a number. I don't, (laughs) and it's so small that I don't really pay a whole lot of attention to it, or I try not to. It's something that I think most people are kind of interested to see how many people are listening to their podcast and and whether or not it's growing or shrinking. Um, I don't think that should really impact what you decide to put out there. I mean, unless your goal is to just somehow eventually get to the point where you're some kind of gaming celebrity personality I don't know that has some kind of influence or maybe even monetizes something but uh, there's so few people in that department I think uh, anyway it it does make me think a little bit about how Anchor has changed though and uh, there are some people here that are newer to the podcasting scene than I am 
some of the options that I really miss about Anchor or some of the things that it used to have is that it used to keep messages you sent in a folder as well. So you could listen to what you sent. Um, and now the only way you hear it again is if the person actually played the message on their podcast and then find it on their podcast and listen to it and hear the response. I mean, it's no big deal, but sometimes it was nice to be able to, if you wanted to have like put together the actual conversation with your end of the um, conversation as part of it too, you you could re, uh, piece it together and now you can't. Um, the other th- one other thing I miss is in the analytics page, it used to be much more um, specific. You used to be able to see the actual states and I think even cities where people were listening to. Um, so you'd be able to see that, oh, I've got listeners in Ohio and there's actually this many, this percentage of my audience is in Cleveland or Cincinnati or in New York or in the UK, it would break it down by uh, Scotland and Wales and, and uh, England. So those things have gone away too, which that were kind of interesting. Um, but anyway, it's still free and that's what matters most to me. Still free and easy to use and I'll keep using it as my platform as long as that is the case. And now we have a call from BJ from the Arcane Alienist talking about the Fight Club episode where I was uh, comparing the BX fighter to the 5E fighter and how they do and how both me and uh, Daniel from Bandit's Keep referred to an episode of the Dungeon Craft YouTube channel where, is it Professor DM? Is that the person that does it? Um, he compared the, the sample character from BX Morgan Ironwolf in both uh, a BX version and the 5e version and a fight versus hobgoblins. So take it away, BJ. Rob, it's BJ. Um, <clears throat> listening to the latest episode and, and one of Daniel's calls. So both of you guys have pointed out there was seems something odd about that hobgoblin versus fighter example that, that uh, he did in Dungeon Craft. I think I'm wondering because <laughs> something jumped out at me that too. Was it that he gave the 5e hobgoblin their martial advantage damage without first establishing that the hobgoblins were in the right kind of tactical position to get that? Because that keys off the hobgoblins sort of acting as a military unit and using positioning and flanking and, you know, military formations to give each other that kind of advantage or that kind of boon in in combat. And I don't think he established the positioning of the hobgoblins relative to the fighter to ensure that they would get that that damage because they do have to gang up on somebody to get that or at least be in proximity to one another. Hey, thanks for the call, BJ. I appreciate it. I couldn't really remember exactly what it was, and I, Daniel, I think, was having a hard time remembering, too. There was just this vague memory of me kind of going, bah, when I watched that video because he had done something wrong with calculations or overlooked something. So I went back and watched it. Uh, it is called something... Oh, I should have written it. I should have wrote it down. Um, Illusion of Choice, Morgan Ironwolf, BX versus 5E or something like that. And uh, Dungeon Craft is the name of the channel. But so what I have issue with, and he even prefaces this at the beginning of the video that he might be off a point here or there in his math and stuff. And he is... Um, he gives Morgan an extra plus one to hit when she'd only be plus two to hit. Um, he, But the bigger issues I have is that in constructing the 5e first level fighter, they don't talk at all about the second wind ability that the first level fighter gets. And they don't talk at all about the fighting style choice that the first level fighter gets. Now there's other things too. They don't talk at all about challenge rating, um, which as I understand it in 5e, the challenge rating number means the level a fourth level party should be to face 
the creature. So if it, if it's challenge rating one, that means one of the uh, one monster that's challenge rating one uh, is a challenge for a first level party of four characters. And hobgoblins are challenge rating one half, which means that two hobgoblins would be a challenge for four uh, first level player characters. And he's just talking about like a one-on-one -on -one battle between Morgan Ironwolf and a Hobgoblin. Um, but as, as BJ points out, he's also factoring in the martial trait, which only comes into play if there are is uh, another Hobgoblin within striking distance of your adversary. So it does imply that there's multiple Hobgoblins um, I mean, this is all just kind of, <laughs> uh, just over analysis, blah, right? But I would have appreciated it had he been more thorough in his discussion because he does have a big audience and he might be giving a false impression. Now, he also talks a little bit about Morgan Ironwolf in the future and what Morgan would look like as a ninth level character. And he again, just overlooks all the other, he's just looking at like to hit bonus, um, he doesn't talk at all about how <laughs> uh, 5e Morgan would then have, like, I think three attacks per round, would have accent, action surge, would have whatever subclass uh, the player chose for that character. So an Eldritch Knight would have a bunch of spells. The Battlemaster would have all their tactical moves that they could do. The Champion would have... Increase, increase critical hit range and and such. So, and the, the ninth level BX fighter is still the exact same. No extra attacks, no, uh, just a, a bonus to hit, more hit points, and better saving throws, just like in every edition of D&D. So those were my, I guess, my beefs with the comparison made on that YouTube channel. I didn't think it was very well done. I think... Uh, it's a, it's a really good program, and you can tell there's a lot of effort put into making these videos. So I just thought that when you're putting that kind of effort into it, you should be a little bit more diligent in uh, examining the actual case-by-case -case, um, situation. And he overlooked some really big points, in my opinion. And now... Moving on to Jason from Nerds RPG Variety Cast, and he's got a number of calls in response to my um, uh, last, well, not last episode, two episodes ago, where I was replying to Colin Green from Spike Pit about it's all just D&D, &D and my take on that, his name was brought up, so he's calling in to state his case. Hey Rob, Jason here. Just wanted to comment on your response to Spike Pit. So, mainly because I was mentioned in the, you know, in his call and in the response a little bit. So I, I just wanted to clarify. When, so when he called and asked me the question, why I differentiate between TSR D and D and YC D and D, and really that differentiation, as I discussed in my show with Barry of Shadow of the Demon Lord probably should have been Gygaxian D&D and post-Gygaxian D&D, right? But, like I told him, it, it wasn't like I, and I've said this, Colin, and he's acknowledged it, you know, it's not political, it's because of the rules differences. And if you listen to my show where I talk to Barry, you know, we acknowledge it's all D&D, just like you said, it's what it says on the tin, and we made a point to say we're not doing edition wars, we're not saying one edition's better than the other. Whatever edition your group likes... That's the right edition for your group. No, there's no bad, wrong, fun here. If you guys, if your group likes 5e, play 5e. That's great. If your group likes 3e, play 3e. It's great. But like you say, there are mechanical differences. And when he asked me why I differentiate between the two, uh, you know, I I got somebody who plays all those editions on the show, Barry Dewey Robinson, a show of the gym podcast. 
and we discussed the, why we felt there's a difference because of the rules. But part of that's a, a failure of communication. And I'm not saying it's Spike Pitt's failure because communication takes both the sender and the receiver. So obviously I wasn't picking up the message Spike Pitt was, Colin was putting down. So I take part of the blame for there without a doubt. But definitely in our response, we weren't trying to perpetrate addition wars. Uh, and, and in fact, myself, I've only played three sessions of 5th edition D&D, and none of them were straight 5th edition. I played one session of Adventures in Middle-Earth and two sessions of Beowulf Age of Heroes, both of which are modified versions of 5th edition. When I came back in the hobby, it was still 4th edition days. Heck, it might have been 3rd edition days. I came back in in the early 2000s, so maybe it was still 3rd edition days, and then went to 4th edition. And then, Anyway, but I, I went and looked for a 1st edition group, and when we played with other groups, it was 1st edition. And for my son, I bought him copies of BX and Beck Me and all the 1st edition books because he was getting old enough to play, and we played those, so... I, I never even looked for the current edition myself. I went back to what I was familiar with and comfortable with. And interesting enough, there in the late uh, what, aughts, I guess, I don't know, like 2007, 2008, 2009, when we were playing in Northern Virginia area, my son and I had no problem finding first edition groups and groups playing Beck Me and stuff like that. It was, you know, it was very popular. Um, I say very popular. It was popular enough that we didn't have any problem finding groups to go play with, game stores or um, other, you know, sometimes somebody's house, sometimes a game store. I, You asked about rules as written, and so I, although most of the games I play in end up being house-ruled, games I play with other people, when I run a game anymore, I kind of prefer house, or prefer rules as written, just because everybody knows what's happening. So, when, when I run a game anymore now, it's typically I'm going to run it rules as written, simply because it's simpler. I don't have to give a sheet of house rules out or anything like that. But I think it's important to say, when I run games anymore, they tend to either be one-shots or they tend to be short, maybe four-session arcs, things like that. So I'm not playing a long campaign. And I'm not using D&D either. I can't remember the last time I ran a game using D&D or a derivative of D&D. Typically, I run other systems, so, you, you know, I'm probably not your typical person. I play plenty, you know, I, I play D&D games, mostly of the BX and BX variants, Beckme variants, but I, I don't run them. As far as Edition Wars and other games, that very much happens. There's, but you look at Champions, you look at RuneQuest, you look at Call of Cthulhu, heck, even Cyberpunk, there's Edition Wars. So it's not just D&D, it's just D&D, of course, is going to be the loudest ones because it's the biggest boy on the block, right? So I, I want to apologize to you for not putting this out on my own show. I know it's a lot of call-ins, but it, it was kind of directly related. And, you know, I didn't want to lose any callers between jumping between shows. So thank you for indulging me. And if you just want to, you, you know, summarize all this, that's fine too. Or just listen to it yourself that's cool so talk to you later hey jason thanks for your calls i appreciate it i did go back and listen to episode number 186 on nerds rpg variety cast and that's where uh, jason had barry from the shadow of the gm podcast on because barry's played i think all of the editions of DD. he's one of those people that apparently didn't have a big break. So if I'm remembering right, I think Barry started out in second edition and played all the way through three, 3.5, four, five. And he's also played Pathfinder and Pathfinder second edition. And I think he's gone back and played uh, D and D first edition and, uh, and BX and maybe even versions of OD and D. So he was a great person for, Jason to bring on the show because he does have a wide breadth of experience playing all these different editions. And they were looking, as as Jason said, 
I didn't get at all if this was any kind of edition war or edition bashing. It was more just an examination of some of the main changes and thematic changes that have that Barry had noticed and Jason has noticed too in his experiences in this progression of of the how the how the game has evolved, changed, however you want to phrase that. So it was more just a, a deep examination of those things. And then there was another episode, number 191, I think, where they took calls and um, and had a you know, back and forth conversation or response to the calls and stuff in regards to this episode. And I think they're both well worth your time. If you're, if you're at all interested in just kind of hearing people talk about rules and, and the games and, you know, how... How it just has a, a slightly different, the mechanics maybe change the interface that people have or the experiences that people have with the game. It's it's worth your time. It's There's no denying, there's they're long episodes. I think the first one is over an hour. The, the response show is nearly an hour. But, uh, but it is, uh, I think, a, a worthwhile listen if you're into that kind of stuff. And it's well done. And it's not, I didn't, I didn't really pick up on any kind of you know, bashing. I think they went another way to to kind of say a lot what Colin's saying, and as far as it's all D and D, and I think what we're really talking about here, or what I'm how I kind of view it, is a macro versus micro kind of thing, and in the macro, in the big picture, you do have these shared themes, many shared concepts especially the concept of, well, genre to some degree. I mean, it, it's fantasy. and uh, But that there's this level and class set up in the game and that you're basically a party, in, <laughs> in the vast majority of cases, a party that works together in opposition to some threat that they perceive or that you're a party working together to recover relics and treasures and stuff like that. And by doing those things, you get more powerful. That's kind of the the macro to me. And the micro, of course, is the how just all the mechanical bits and pieces and what goes into your your character and how magic works and all that, you know, and, and that is where you see all these differences and it's, it's, it's all really boils down to a matter of taste. You just need to, in my mind, pick the version that is closest to your vision of what you want to have. And then for me, and I think many people, then you take that and tinker with it to really turn the dials and tune it in to what you and your group want. You tune it in to find the, the ex- to highlight the experiences and the, um, and the feel that your group wants to play. So for me, I mean, I tried 5e, and the biggest beef I have with it is there's too much magic, and the monsters are too complicated. So I went back to playing the classic forms because magic is a lot more, at least magic spells are far more rare, feel more, much more special, and, um, and there's not as much overlap. I've gone over this a lot, and the monsters are easy peasy. It's, it's a snap. And that's, you know, Jason mentioned familiarity and comfort and I think that's a big part of it I I've been playing this game and uh, and really the the new edition while there were things I really liked about it uh, and actually have attempted to kind of incorporate some of those things into some of my classic D and d it just didn't do enough for me to it didn't change things for the better. Uh, so I, for me, 
all that extra stuff was superfluous. It wasn't improving my game. It was just making the game more difficult. And uh, that's just not what I'm looking for right now. And so in in the episode that Barry and, and Jason have, they're basically, they were kind of differentiating or trying to find where was the dividing line? Where did things, did things change in the transition from TSR to WotC? Or if you, is it more appropriate to say, did it change significantly when Gygax left? So we're talking Gygaxian D&D and non-Gygax, or post-Gygaxian D&D. I think that might be the better delineation, but, but you know, it's, none of us are saying that <laughs> they're interchangeable, right? We all acknowledge that there's different versions of this game that it's been around so long there's bound to be differences i mean even i I think of analogies to sports and even though the rules of baseball for instance haven't changed a whole lot the outcome in baseball has changed a lot watching a game in the last year or two and then watching a game from the 1970s you see a lot of changes uh, they might be small, but but you uh, add them all up, and they become more significant. And then if you go back even further uh, and watch a game from the 40s or the 30s or something, and it's even bigger still. It's the same game, but the players have changed. And uh, yeah, it's so <laughs> there's no doubt that the games change when they're when they're around this long. And Jason mentions that addition wars go on in other games and stuff too, and that isn't surprising to me at all. I think one thing he brings up that's really important to uh, to acknowledge or to just keep in mind too is a lot of this is about scope too. If if you are playing one-shots and and if you're playing with new people or looking for a group or something, I think it is probably better to just go with rules as written because you all share a common language, so to speak. So rather than tinkering around with stuff, if you're trying to recruit players and you just say, I'm playing 5e or I'm playing BX, it's probably best to just go with the rules and maybe have like one or two things that you can just easily say, all right, we're playing 5e and we're not using any of the optional feats. We're not using multi-classing or whatever. We're playing BX, but it's spontaneous casting. It's not fancy and magic. I mean, you can, that would be, I think, an easy approach, but, but you have a totally different mindset when you're doing games like in my group where it's a long established home group. Um, <laughs> and it's all the goal, at least, or the, the, the intent at the beginning is to have a, a long running campaign. Then I think you can really delve into things and it's, it's a very different dynamic. Um, so yeah, um, no worries about sending me a bunch of calls that it's, um, I think you were it's fine. <laughs> and speaking of calls, we have another caller coming up next, John Allen Large from the Red Dice Diaries, who we haven't heard from for a long, long time. And most of you know John. He's uh, has a YouTube channel, podcast, long-running podcast, well worth your time. And man, has it been a year now? Something like that, close to, if not, that he moved off Anchor and... Uh, changed the format a little bit of his podcast. I think probably for the better. He he uh, brought in Hannah, his wife, and they have uh, they do a tandem show. Well, most times it's there's been a couple episodes where I think it's just been John, but uh, but they have a good chemistry. Well, obviously, they're married, right? And uh, <laughs> and but it's just interesting to hear different point of views, and they talk about a variety of subjects, mainly centered around D and D, but they do. Uh, 
go to other just RPG-related topics, and I really like their Friend or Foe Friday, where they, um, speaking of D&D through the years, they take a look at monsters, or a specific monster, and look at how that monster has changed from when it was first introduced in the game until its current iteration, or when maybe it, it dropped out of the game or whatever. So, very interesting stuff. Make sure you take a listen, if you haven't already, to Red Dice Diaries, but... Take it away, John. Welcome to the penthouse, Thunder. Hey there, Rob. It's John calling from the Red Dice Stories. I'm just listening to your calling Bonanza 19. And yeah, you've got me thinking when you're talking about henchmen. It's a weird thing because the, the current sort of OSE campaign I'm running is probably the first game in ages where like henchmen have been a thing. It's just not really been sort of something groups I've played upon previously of like picked up on it wasn't a specific sort of like oh no we're definitely not having any henchmen for a reason it just didn't seem to be a part of the game that inspired people or that they wanted to pick up on whereas i think maybe the sort of focus on doing more sort of like old school style stuff in our old school essentials game has led to people looking a little bit more in that or maybe it's the background of our particular campaign who knows but just wanted to call in and say, great episode. I'm going to get back to listening to the rest of it. Take care. Hey, John. Thanks for the call. Thanks for listening. I appreciate it. Henchmen and Hirelings is yeah a topic I really find interesting. And I think it is, you know, it's something that's kind of come and gone in my gaming. And it's, and I think it's come and gone in D&D in the emphasis uh, where, it's kind of baked in with the assumptions in some of the rules in classic D&D. I mean, you had things where your charisma directly affected how many henchmen you could have or retainers or whatever, and it affected the, the morale of those retainers. So it was kind of baked in. And I think it also went hand in hand with this idea of, of uh, having a domain and stuff, or that was one of the the end of career or late career kind of yeah, Herm. <laughs> Herm really likes henchmen if you if he hasn't said so before. Um but you had, you know, domain building and stuff at the uh upper levels of a character's career. And of course, having a domain means you probably have to have retainers and uh and henchmen and stuff too to uh help man and uh and staff and and protect that holding and that domain and and in for instance fifth edition they're they're really you lost that uh that baked in rules for these things at least in the core rules if i'm remembering correctly and you also have the dynamic as i've talked about where the characters are becoming much less dependent upon others they're they've become much more capable in a wider arc of uh, skills and powers. So you can cover all the bases with fewer characters. They're, they're more along the lines of the one-man army, or at least the four-character army. And you don't need this big group to tackle problems and stuff or you don't need it as much so i think it has been complete very very much de-emphasized in the late edition and <laughs> sorry about that herm decided to start throwing stuff off the desk um uh, where was i well anyway i do plan on doing uh, a specific podcast coming up here in the next episode or two on uh on henchmen and hirelings in classic D&D and how I might follow the rules or not follow the rules as the case may be, my house rules and stuff, which probably, like most of my stuff, isn't original. <laughs> it's all stuff that people have probably done before and probably have done better. Uh, but like John, I've got another couple of calls here from someone we have, haven't heard from for a while, Liren from Updates from the Middle of Nowhere. Let's see what Liren has to say. Hey Rob, it's Liren from Updates from the Middle of Nowhere. I was just listening to your episode for the record and a couple of things I wanted to respond to. So 
You said that you think everyone should have to work in some industry or do something serving other people. And oh my gosh, I could not agree with you more. I think that is so important. I think that it can really, I don't know, it, it offers such an awakening. I think I've known people who have never worked in the service industry and, um, I don't, I just think doing that and being in that position changes your view. You know, I mean, you it's, it's like, for some reason, Americans have to walk in people's shoes to be able to have empathy on in so many ways. So the other thing I wanted to say is you said you don't know why people listen. I listened because I heard you making comments on other shows and I thought they were thoughtful and it led me to your show. Hey, Liren, thanks for the call. I appreciate it. Uh, yeah, I'm not sure if that's a peculiarity to Americans or not. I mean, I'm an American, so <laughs> that's my point of view, obviously, and Certainly, uh, I think it sh it sure helps a person's empathy and humility to have um, clean toilets or cleaned out uh, a cow pen or something or waited on people in customer service. And I can only imagine um, what someone in the healthcare field goes through as far as, you know, uh, a nurse or a doctor caring for people and in some cases having their lives in your hands, the responsibility for that would be, uh, you know, and first responders to uh, fire and rescue, um, in many cases, military people and, uh, and police being in dangerous situations, protecting civilians, protecting your comrades, um, trying to do the right thing in, in very trying circumstances that change second to second. I, that is, uh, something I, uh, have a, a deep respect for and, uh, something that I don't think I'd be very good at, <laughs> but yeah, I, I do think that everyone could benefit from, being in a position where, where they're not, um, <laughs> where, where they are doing something that maybe you wouldn't want to. I mean, who wants to scrub a toilet? Who wants to, uh, pick up the trash and all that? But it's, you know, these are all really important things in our society and they're, and they're often not acknowledged and not rewarded and um um and i think there there's a lot of people and especially a lot of people that rise to the top whether they're you know heads of corporations or politicians who i have a feeling have never really had to do a lot of these things and it shows in <laughs> in their attitudes um and maybe people just rise to those level because it requires a certain level of narcissism and and um self-importance or something to even consider. I mean, it, it takes a certain mindset to think that, yep, I'm the right person to be running the country or I'm the right person to be running this company or this, or be, uh, the Senator from the state or whatever. So definitely a different breed. Um, but uh, <laughs> what was your other point as far as, yeah, I, I often wonder how often, people actually do kind of follow callers. Um, it used to be something I thought would be a way that a lot of people would find other shows and stuff. And may, it, it might be, but you know, along these lines of how do people get exposure for their, for their podcasts and stuff. And, um, you know, you maybe get heard on another more popular podcast and some people come over and check out yours and stuff. I think that does go on. Uh, I think, of course, what makes people stick to listening to a particular show is that it's, you know, content they find interesting and a person they find interesting and uh, engaging to listen to. So, anyway, thanks for for listening and calling in. And Liren's got another call. Hey Rob, it's Liren from Updates from the Middle of Nowhere, and I'm listening to your Building Bridges episode. 
and I'm not quite all the way through it, but I don't trust myself to remember what I wanted to say. So I wanted to give you a quick call. Um, you know, you're talking about us versus them. And I can tell you that as somebody who is alternative in many ways, uh, I am intimately familiar with us versus them thinking and the damage that it can cause. And then I had a son who's on the autism spectrum. And once again, I saw yet another way that someone can be othered, right? Someone can become the them of the us versus them equation. And uh, I think that's incredibly destructive. Any group I have ever volunteered with that was a volunteer group, it takes one or two people to really demolish the morale of that group with making, you know, with the whole, you're one of them mentality. So, um, I think that's an important thing for us to discuss and hopefully evolve past. Hey, Lauren, thanks for the call. I, I agree with what you're saying there. I think, um, the us versus them, uh, it's, it's all degrees, right. Of importance. Um, because some, it matters a lot more in some societal and uh, morality issues than in others. And of course I'm, most often just talking about things like gaming and hobbies where it's not, you know, we're all doing this for fun or that's, that's the goal is we're, we're doing this for, uh, to enrich our lives, uh, in a casual atmosphere and in a, a way to just kind of pass time in an enjoyable and engaging manner with your friends and maybe family. So, I mean, I, I totally get what you're saying. I, as a, as a kid, there were a couple instances, well, some that were long running that, you know, shaped some of my, uh, I'm sure shaped some of my opinions and beliefs in, at the time, subtle, but, uh, long-term big ways. I mean, my uncle, my mom's brother, her only sibling is mentally challenged. And of course she grew up having to deal with all the assholes that made fun of him. And, um, you know, I had to try and protect him from, uh, from these assholes. And I even encountered it, you know, the, the neighborhood kids would see my uncle or whatever. And, uh, and start teasing me and stuff about it. Uh, so you you know you you get to see early on as as a kid how how nasty people can be about things and uh, and I saw it too when we we uh, moved away from the cities down to a farm. The people that bought our house, uh, their youngest child, Danny, was uh, an adopted uh, Native American. And we'd come back and visit the old neighborhood. And so I became friends with Danny. We were about the same age. And, you know, I'd see asshole kids making fun of him uh, just because of his uh, his heritage, you know. And I got in fights over that. <laughs> and uh, so, yeah, you see all that kind of crap. Uh, and it it does shape your opinion, of course, and, and it goes on all over the place with us versus them. And even, you know, I'm, I'm pretty conventional. I, I have a, I'm, I have a heterosexual relationship, right? So, uh, <laughs> but even that, I mean, when Mary and I first started going out, um, I had really long hair, like I, <laughs> like I do now, I haven't had a haircut in, in over a year now, and it's getting hot again, so I think it's going to be time to shave this all off. But I had really long hair. Mary had really short hair, kind of Annie Lennox-ish. And, um, you know, we'd get looked at askance, and people would make comments about just that based on our, our hair. What? Uh, and, of course, uh, after, you know, being together, we'd being of, you know, your mid-20s, early 30s, all your friends and family are getting married and stuff. And when you're at the the wedding, you have all these people saying, oh, you're next. When are you guys going to tie the knot and, and all this? And when are you guys going to have kids? And neither one of us ever wanted to have kids. And, you know, we, we've been together 27 years and we're still not officially 
quote-unquote married, even though we kind of regard one, I think, each other as our, well, our uh, life partner, whatever you want to call it. Our, um, so in our minds, I think we're pretty much married, and we have rings and all that stuff too. We just never really saw much of a point uh, to following social convention in that regard. It, it just doesn't mean anything to either of us, which doesn't, <laughs> I'm not saying it, it doesn't mean anything for anyone else. It just, for us, it's like just a piece of paper and we'll probably get married at some point just because there are probably some kind of legalities that we're overlooking that would be important should, heaven forbid, something happen to one of us. But, um, but it was, it is pretty funny how people, some people won't even think that we have like, um, some kind of legitimate relationship <laughs> because we're not married. And, uh, and also that, you know, all these people that, well, not all, a lot of people whose weddings we attended are no longer together. Um, so I guess the way we're looking at it is if it's not broke, don't fix it. Things are great. Why? <laughs> Obviously, the uh, the vows and the uh, and the certificates and the sanctification of your union isn't all that binding for a lot of people, and for those that is great. Uh, boy, did I get off tangent there. Us versus them, though, it goes on every place, and uh, I don't know if we'll ever weed it out or even really if it should be uh i don't know it's a, a very complicated situation like i said it's all about degrees and stuff if you, if you're just talking about you know because i think we all kind of coalesce around like-minded people or people with similar outlooks and those are the people we enjoy associating with in a lot of ways um, I mean, I don't get me wrong. I enjoy having a good uh, exchange of ideas with someone that has a differing point of view. And I think it, it helps you grow, of course, to examine your own beliefs and to be exposed to someone with a differing point of view and not just shut them down because they're different, but to actually listen and consider uh, their experiences and their point of view as well. But in something like we're talking about here with gaming and stuff, I think it's perfectly fine for people to have their um, their favorites and their preferred game style and their preferred games, as long as they're not just saying shitting on everyone else's games and uh, experiences and stuff. If they're just have the same mindset, like, yeah, you play the game you like, I'll play the game I like. Let's talk about talk about these things, or let's talk about how what my game is like and uh what I've done to change things and maybe you'll take something away from that to improve your game maybe you'll call in and say hey this is the way I'm doing it and you know that's that's how it goes uh but yeah I I certainly don't want to encourage people to to uh denigrate someone else's play style or to yeah <laughs> and of course it's a much bigger issue in uh, societal issues at large so blah, I'm getting way off tangent and uh, I'm probably better confined to talking about just games <laughs> and the games specifically the games I know about and have experience with but uh, thanks for the calls Laren wow enough of my babble We've got Daniel from Bandit's Keep back with a couple messages. Getting us back on gaming. Hey Rob, Daniel from Bandit's Keep calling in about the episode that's replying to Colin. Um, yeah, I think what's interesting is because 5e is the current edition, so I'm assuming whatever edition is current, this would be the case. Uh, people, at least if you encounter somebody who says, hey, you want to play D&D, they're going to probably assume that you are playing rules as written. And I'll say that just based on my experience of playing a lot of one-shots online with people. And that is just kind of the standard. Now, for my long-running campaign in 5e, of course, I had tons of house rules and we really played differently. So I do think that most people 
are looking for rules as written with the most current edition if they're joining, let's say, a one-shot. I mean, and again, that was probably true of AD&D back in the day if you were going to go to a tournament or something. I just never did that stuff. But super interesting. So, of course, I can't think of anything off the top of my head, but I know that a lot of products that came out for Limitations of the Flame Princess, uh, kind of stuff that was already out there, I guess, that then, then put, they put under their brand or republished it, maybe is more accurate a statement, would use this kind of uh, generalization. So it would use hit dice, for instance, but then it would say, like, armor as chain mail, um, you know, speed as a unencumbered man, you know, stuff like that, so that you could actually translate it into your system. But I think even in those cases, within the monsters, there were little mini parts of it that still kind of focused on the limitations of the Flame Princess game. So I guess it wasn't completely ag agnostic. You'd probably have to have each monster have a mini game within it to say how to fight it if you want to make it completely agnostic. Hey, thanks for the calls, Daniel. And he's, yeah, kind of echoing what I was talking about a little bit earlier, too, in that... Uh, I think when you're playing one-shots, when you're playing with new people, I think it is probably, well, it, I don't know about the expectations of people that you're going to play rules as written, but yeah, I have a feeling most, if you if you just say, yeah, we're going to play D&D, &D, I think um, someone that's played D&D &D for a long time, or is at least familiar with the fact that there's a lot of iterations of D&D &D, might ask a probing question like, well, what kind of D&D are you proposing to play? Or what, what edition, what version? And then if you say, we're going to play second edition, they'll have some kind of idea if they're familiar with it. And they might ask even more questions like, oh, are you, are you going to play with the kits from the various handbooks or just straight player's handbook or what? Or if, if you're playing 5e, they might ask, are you going to use feats? Are you going to use multi-glassing? Are you going to use stuff from Xanathar's or, you know, any of the other releases and stuff? So yeah, it's, um, I think it's important to, with, uh, I mean, as, as a person that doesn't really play with, <laughs> with new people and doesn't play one shots, I'm only imagining what it's like. Um, and, uh, basing that on what I hear from other people. So I don't know for a fact, but I'd imagine that, yeah, it's best to have a common language in these kind of setups. You don't want to spend a lot of time for a game you're going to play for four hours going over house rules or anything, just like, yeah, we're playing Call of Cthulhu, and this is, we're playing Call of Cthulhu 7th edition, or we're playing 1st edition Pathfinder, you know, and and just, yep go because you're you're only playing it once or whatever so i totally get that as far as system agnostic i was kind of thinking about that a little bit a few of the supplements that i have that are pretty much agnostic that you could use with a lot of different games would that have some popularity how about the dungeon alphabet by uh, goodman games and uh the Dangers of Hot Springs Island. Um, is that Jacob Hurst that put that out? That was That's pretty popular, too. It's something I'd love to get to the, the table eventually. What was really cool about Hot Springs Island, if you haven't seen it or heard about it, and I, I bet most of you have, but it was done in two different books. So there's one that's kind of like a found object, almost like a journal or something that you can give to the players. And Herm's turning over my coffee. Herm, you really pill today um <laughs> but the player's book is kind of like a found object journal that you can give to them and if they take the time to read it they can find out all kinds of stuff um and then the and then there's the the bigger dm's book that gives you all the nitty-gritty about the the setting and stuff um and that that could be a really cool campaign if any of you have played that i'd love to hear about it but yeah, in, in general, um, I think most supplements are put out with a specific game in mind because I think that's probably what sells, especially if you're gearing it towards a really popular system. So, yeah. I think we got a couple more calls. I think there's one from Jason and one from Logan from Swordbreaker. So let's, 
wrap it up here. Hey Rob, Jason here. I hope your vacation's going well. So I'm listening to the latest, I think it's the latest, Gaming and BS. It's from the end of April about horror games. And Brad, I think it's Brad, about 22 minutes in, talks about how a different thing you can do in horror games is not just play what's on your character sheet, but think outside the box. And it almost seemed like like normally he would expect you just to do what's on your character sheets. And I haven't listened to these guys like you have, and I'm not putting them down. It just kind of shocked me because I assume most people play where you don't, you're not locked into what's on your character sheet, but he almost makes it sound like the normal mode of play is looking at your character sheet to look what, what you can do. Is that typical, kind of like what they talk about? Because I haven't listened to many of these episodes like you have. It, it just struck me as really odd that he's like, one different thing you can do in a horror game is this, when it's something you should always be doing. But I don't know, just a thought. Take care. Hey, Jason. Yep, Gaming and BS is a podcast I've listened to for a long time. I used to listen to it. It comes out weekly, and it's Brett, Brett and Sean. Uh, they're a couple of Wisconsin guys. And their focus is mainly, I think, from a D&D point of view. Um, I know Brett is uh, a big first edition AD&D guy. That's what he kind of cut his teeth on. And uh, I know Sean has been running 5e, but Brett's run Pathfinder and 5e. He put out a supplement, uh, a city supplement about his home world called Avalon. Uh, and that's like this vast metropolis. <clears throat> and... Um, so I haven't had a chance to really go through the supplement. It was like a Kickstarter thing, but it was actually on the shelf of my local game shop, I'm sure, because, you know, they're fairly local guys from Madison. Um, but uh, that's done for 5e. Um, and Brett, I, I think he, one of his other main influences was playing Vampire. Um, but I, I haven't listened to them nearly as much as I used to. Um, I kind of cherry-pick episodes now. But I don't think that's kind of their, I don't, I've never really gotten that as their point of view as far as like the whole character sheet and, um, you know, only, only confining your, or thinking mainly from your, your player options as to what's written down in your character sheet. I think, uh, that's actually something they're very much aware of and, and talk about on episodes, uh, maybe even specific episodes from time to time, how um, this idea that some some games that have less, that more is less, that you have more options if you actually have less on your character sheet because the sky's the limit. But then, you know, on the other hand, sometimes uh, tyranny of choice, right? You, um, If you don't really have things spelled out, you maybe don't even think of things or you're, you don't think you can do something rather than asking. Anyway, um, I think, and I don't know how much of that is really even game system. I think a, a lot of that is how you grow up or come to the hobby playing the game and how um, the groups you play with run the game. If Because I think some referees will just kind of confine things to whatever is on the character sheet and you can't really do anything outside of that or at least not competently but anyway I haven't listened to that episode you mentioned in particular the horror episode I'll give it a shot uh, but I do really like gaming and BS um, sometimes they tap dance around topics a little too much uh, <laughs> like like I do but Sometimes I find myself saying, get to the point, but, um, but in general, I think it's one of the better podcasts out there, and uh, yeah, I'd recommend at least going through their catalog and picking a topic that sounds interesting and giving it a shot. Rob, I was totally captivated by your Middlemarch thing. I had to turn it back and listen to it again. Have a great vacation, and I'm looking forward to you coming back and sharing more of your awesome ideas. Hey, thanks, Logan. I appreciate it. And vacation was, it was great. I mean, I'm <laughs> I'm wishing it could have gone on for another week or two. I, I really look forward to being retired and being able to go places for a couple of weeks or a month or something rather than, you know, having to rush back home and stuff to get back to work and all that. But 
Oh, will I ever be able to retire? Hopefully. Hopefully. And as far as Middlemarch, I'm glad that sounds interesting. I'll certainly be talking about it more. It's always, as I've kind of outlined before, it's it's hard to talk about my campaign because my players listen. So I can't really, you know, talk about things in great detail. Um, well, I can't talk about adventures, I should say, in great detail. I could talk about the campaign setting in, in uh, more detail and stuff. But yeah, that's I will talk about how I'm modifying Glen Seal's Midderlands to uh, kind of fit some more of my exploration tastes and concepts and stuff and uh, having a little bit more otherworldly things rather than going like down into the earth just stepping into these fringe dimensions or pocket planes or however you want to think of it. Uh, speaking of Glen Seal, um, check out, he's got a new Kickstarter yeah, I've been I'm giving away my extra copies of the Mitterzine. Well, he's going to release some more copies of the Mitterzine. Issues number six and seven. It's a live Kickstarter. Go check it out. I'm sure if you just type in Mitterzine Kickstarter in a Google search, it will come right up. Uh, but you can get them in PDF. You can get physical copies. And he's even got options where you can get all the Mitterzines in PDF or I think even all the Mitterzines in print if you want. Uh, again, if you live in the States, shipping is quite a bit. But, you know, if you get a, a a bundle of stuff, it's really good stuff. I recommend it highly. If nothing else, I'd really consider getting the PDFs and uh, supporting a great uh, creator like Glenn Seal and Monkey Blood Design. And yesterday, I got, uh, I talked about at the beginning that some of these things are Coming in, well, I came home and found a package in the mail. It's my first uh, project that I supported in Zine Quest 3 that came in, In the Shadow of Tower Silver Axe by Jacob Fleming. And it's it's looking really I mean, the production on this is great. The layout, he's one of those uh, uh, talented sorts that did all the writing and the illustrations, and the illustrations are great. And this player map is done in a kind of a topographical, almost like a hiking map. So it shows, like, levels of ele uh, elevation and stuff, um, like a top-down contour line kind of thing. I, I love that kind of look to a map, and I wish there were more of them. But I'll, I'll probably do a whole episode once I've read this uh, as a review so that'll be coming up along with a henchman and hireling episode and talk about my middle march uh campaign for in the Midlands. so thanks to everyone who called in today if i can remember them all uh jason from nerds rpg variety cast bj from arcane alienist daniel from bandits keep John Large from Red Dice Diaries, Liren from Updates from the Middle of Nowhere, uh, Logan from the Swordbreaker podcast. Am I forgetting anyone? If I am, I apologize, but thanks for listening. Until I talk to you again, don't go down in a heap. <laughs>